Good morning, church. If you would, go ahead and turn in the scriptures to Romans chapter 5. And we will read the first 11 verses. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to take a moment and thank the musicians. Uh, Obviously, we're going through a time of transition, but that was very well done this morning. And uh, Ron, it was beautiful. Arvatory. So we are in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you have called us from darkness to light and from sin to righteousness, from guilt to forgiveness. And in doing this, Lord, you have gathered us to yourself and to a body, to a congregation. And so you have appointed that we come this morning to worship you. Now, Lord, I pray as we have worshiped you, that you would continue to aid us to worship you in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. And I pray that you would make your word effective this morning for the good of your people and for your glory, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Ignore the title of the sermon that has bothered me more and more since I turned it in. I wasn't quite sure when I turned in the passage. That was good. When I turned in the title, not so much. Uh, While it's true, it's just kind of dull, and the more and more I've gone over this now in my preparations for it, I think I would say more like rejoicing in the love of God rather than simply the fruits of righteousness. It's just in there, and we're going to get there. Now, the Reformation is at hand. Uh, Everybody aware of that? Okay. You know, it's not talked about as much anymore, and I'm just one of those people that refuses to let it go. Um, I'm, I'm tired of our... Christian holidays and high points being covered up with so much lesser things. And while the Reformation is not equal to Christmas or Easter, it is certainly important in the life of the church. And so I just refuse to let this season of all seasons be given over to Halloween. Halloween has become the number two money spender in the markets in America. Number two. You know, we've got all the inflatable bounce house looking things with pumpkins and all. Why not the reformers? Why not, a, why not a big round Martin Luther in the front yard? I mean, why not? Okay, so the Reformation is that important. In fact, I had a discussion recently with kind of a historical authority um, who believes that the Reformation 
is actually the most significant historical event since the signing of the Magna Carta in 1215. That covers a lot of years. And the more I think about it, not just the event itself, but the fruits of the Reformation, uh, whether it be whether it be all included, there's no reason to single things out. All of Western civilization built on a Reformation foundation and all the fruits that we see up into our time, things that never would have happened without it. Um, if you put all that in the balance, the Reformation is certainly significant. So we're just not going to let it go. And so this morning, we return to Romans. Uh, rather than giving the Reformation up to Halloween, we're going to go back to some of the root texts, the book of Romans, which was central to the recovery of many of the central doctrines of the Reformation, such as justification by faith, which has been a theme of our worship this morning. Um, let me teach you the book of Romans real quick. Uh, you know, we had a pastor here one time who said he preached through Romans in 15 months, and it was five years. And it was worth every bit of it, don't get me wrong. But to help set the context this morning for Romans chapter 5, you can look at Romans in just five S's. Sin, salvation, security, sovereignty, and service. Now say that back to me. Sin, salvation, security, sovereignty, and service. So Paul establishes the fact that all men are sinful, that the sin of Adam has affected all men, all mankind, and that there was no one innocent. And we're in such a state that we don't seek God. So he sets this stage. we got a terrible problem. And then he talks about the salvation of God and the work that God has done to correct the problem, to draw men to them himself. And that takes us all the way up to chapters you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. When we get to 5, some people see this as a transition. They say it tags right on to salvation because now we're looking at the results of salvation. I tend to think it's introductory to the section on security because it is talking about the benefits or the results of our justification, but it talks about it as an accomplished event, a final done, done for. And so it's the beginning of security, which finds its high point in chapter 8, where nothing can separate God's people from the love of God. Nothing. Not life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor height, nor depth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I see chapter 5 is in that section, the beginning of it, book ended with chapter 8, and that's security. And then 9 through 11, the sovereignty of God, and that when you step back and look at all things from the big picture, God did it all, start to finish, right down to the choices of sinful men, right down to calling you out of darkness to light. It's all his work not yours, and then 12 through 15, service, how we serve one another for the good of the God's people and for his glory. So sin, salvation, security, sovereignty, and service. And chapter 5 being the transitional but the beginning of our security. So we begin in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore having been justified by faith. Now if you've been around the church a long time, we pick up a certain vocabulary. And so we see words like justification and if I asked you, even though you were given a definition in the worship folder this morning, if you did have that and not cheating, could you give me a definition of justification? Now, some could, maybe some can't, but it becomes part of our Christian language. And so rather than just ignore it, I am going to just point you back to it because it is so important. So important. So now you can turn back in your bulletin. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's a mouthful. An act of God's free grace. Really, it's almost a, 
It uses the word imputation here, but it's almost like a double imputation. You know, before everything was electronic, we actually had file cabinets and, you know, we had folders in there. Well, let's just say there's a folder assigned to every one of you. And in there is a record of your life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Most the bad and the ugly. And in fact, maybe some of these things are highlighted. But how many pages do you figure you could stuff in your folder? <laughs> you know, the list could get pretty long. Okay, and then came the one and only God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's in his folder? Just the good. There's no bad, there's no ugly. And in the act of justification, God takes your folder and puts it in his and takes his and puts it in yours so that the righteousness of Christ is yours. It counts for you. The record, your record, is clean. And he took those sins on himself to the cross and paid for every single one of them through the shedding of his own blood. That's justification. It is Christ in your place. It is the erasure of all your bad, all your evil, all your sin. It's the elimination of it, and God casts it away and sees it no more. Now, does that mean he makes you righteous? No. It's a forensic, a judicial declaration that he accepts you as righteous for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, counted as yours. That's justification. Now, if we weren't so insensitive, we could just stop right here, go back to worship, and close in prayer. Can you imagine the depths of the love of God in the act of justification? We will get to God's motive here, the love of God. And we are people who rejoice in the love of God, having been justified by faith. And then two results. Justified by faith. Well, what comes of it? One, peace. We have peace with God. Whereas before we didn't. The Bible describes us as God's enemies. We even see that in our passage for down in verse 10. For while, if while we were enemies, God did this. We were enemies of God. We were against him. See, the Bible speaks of different kinds of peace. There is this existential peace. There is this warm and fuzzy feeling. There is Philippians, the peace which passes all understanding, which God gives you to guard your hearts and minds. There is the peace that Jesus himself says, my peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. As he's preparing his disciples for his departure, he gives them peace. He pronounces his peace for them to calm their hearts, to allay their fears. That is not this peace. This peace is nothing more or less than the cessation of hostilities between two parties at war. You with your creator. You were enemies of God. And God has done something to reconcile you to himself. This is not among two equal parties. This is like a king and his rebellious subjects. And yet in patience, he waits and waits and waits and at the right time does what only he could do to reconcile these rebellious subjects to himself. And because of that, we have peace with God. So there is no more fear, no more fear of the judgment to come. There is no more fear of standing before this holy God, whom we know is there, but left to ourselves, refuse to acknowledge and bow before. And yet God has reconciled us in his son. And so there is peace. And not just peace. Another benefit of our justification, verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, the ESV says our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It shouldn't be any surprise to you. I like the NAS. I think the NAS is better here. It's our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And that basically means access as well, but it gives the more complete picture. Because to say I now have access to the throne 
leaves out a very important ingredient. It sounds like I can come all on my own. I have somehow done something and been made good enough, found good enough, that I can approach the throne. And I'm talking the throne upon which sits the creator of all things, in all of his holiness and all of his glory. Like, I can just come in there. No. But because of our introduction, I can come in there. I'm sure there are many of you here, you know, are fans of Downton Abbey. That goes back quite a few years now, right? But remember, there was the one character who came of age, the one girl, Rose. She came of age, and it was her time to go and have her season to where she'd be introduced to society. But what was, what was the start of that? She came into the presence of the throne. She was introduced, and she didn't come without a sponsor. She had to have a qualified family member who had the lineage and the proper connections to introduce her to the one sitting on the throne. That's why our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand is so important. We don't come on our own. We come because of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come with him as our sponsor, bringing us into the throne room and standing us before the Father and saying, he's with me. Okay, So we have not just peace with God, but we have our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And the word stand just shows us the solidity and the safety of our position. So when we come before the throne, before this awesome one, and I don't know about you, but every movie I've seen that, that makes up these great kings... I'm always disappointed when we get to the throne room. We walk in there, and you have the banners flying, and the trumpets blaring, and the people bowing, and what do you see up there with this little thing sitting on the throne? And when you get closer, he's not that much more impressive. He's just one of us. Okay, that's not the throne we come to. This is the throne where the elders and the living creatures are bowing down and offering up praise and worship. Surrounded by a sea looks like an emerald with peals of lightning and thunder, and there's one who sits upon the throne who is not unimpressive. Okay, we come before the throne of the creator of all things, and we have access. We have a standing before him now, something we did not have before, all because of the work of Christ on our behalf. So we have the justification, the definition of it itself. We have its immediate byproducts, peace with God, and access to the throne, our standing before the creator of all things. And what... Because of that, what kind of people ought we to be? Really. If we could just get our minds wrapped around that, what kind of people ought we to be? What effect does this have on us, the objects of God's mercy? What difference does this make? It's in our text. Okay, we have three times. We have this in verse 2, for instance, our introduction by grace into this grace in which we stand, and we, ESV says rejoice. NAS says exalt. We'll get back to the difference in those in a minute. But right there in verse 2, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. We drop down to verse 3. Not only this, but we exalt or rejoice in our tribulations. We drop down to verse 11, kind of the bookend here. And not only this, but we also exalt or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Emphasis on now. little adverb stuck in there, and I think Paul had a real meaning for it. Now. So we exalt in hope of glory, future orientation. We exalt in our tribulations now. That's where the rubber meets the road. And we exalt that we now possess. We are now possessing some realities of the kingdom of God now have been reconciled to him. So, exalt, rejoice. What does it mean? This is the kind of people we are. This is the response to the work of God. 
We rejoice. But see, that's not enough. And so again, I don't mean to slam the ESV. Rejoice is pretty good. It's certainly included in there. But exalt adds a little bit more. The idea of exalting includes the idea of boasting or bragging. Not in ourselves. Paul would, Paul would hate self-boasting. But Paul will boast in the Lord all day long. He will brag about him. Remember the beginning of Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No matter what you may say about it, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. That's Paul boasting. That's Paul exalting. That's Paul rejoicing in this sense. So another way to say it is to display or proclaim publicly and even ostentatiously the goodness of God to make a big deal of. So for the believer, this is not pointing back to yourself, oh, I believed in God, isn't it wonderful? No, this is pointing to, oh, God has drawn me out of darkness. God has done a work. God has justified me, accepted me in his presence. So not a personal accomplishment, but a boasting in what God has done on your behalf. This is a triumphant rejoicing. See, it's just bigger than just plain rejoicing. A triumphant rejoicing, even to the point of bragging. And this work of God changes everything for us. Changes how we see things. Changes what things we value. It changes, should change, how we walk and talk all day long, the subjects of our conversation, our interactions with other people. For we once walked in darkness, but now we walk in light, and it changes things. The world looks at us and says, what a bunch of crazy. But we know better. Because God has made us know better. Now, I want to look at the three examples. What are the effects it has? You know, we have three rejoicings, and they each talk about different things. We're going to take them in a slightly different order. Instead of one, two, three, we're going to look at one, three, two. But that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll keep up. Number one, we rejoice or exalt in the hope of glory. That's in verse two, second half. We rejoice or exalt in the hope of glory. What a change. See, I said it changes everything, right? The work of God changes everything. Whereas once we were fearful of the future, if we had any sense at all, because it is obvious to a man that there is a creator over all things, and one day some, we're going to be answering to him. And so there's a fearful expectation of the judgment to come, the future, and rightly so, because back in chapter 3, Paul tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of what? Of his glory. All have sinned and fallen short of his glory. Every individual has done something and disqualified themselves. In fact, at birth, as we were looking at Sunday school this morning, are born disqualified because of the sin of our forebears. We are disqualified from the glory of God. We can't get there, can't reach it. And yet now that God has done a work and qualified us and given us standing, now we can exalt in the hope of glory. We no longer have to fear entering into the presence of God. We can walk in there because once we were children of wrath, but now we are his, his children. Now we are children of God. No fear in the presence of our Father as we long to see him face to face. It is really hard to describe the glory of God. I've already mentioned the scene in Revelation. I've already mentioned the impressive being on the throne, whatever that's going to look like, because God does not have a body. God is a spirit. So what does it look like? I don't know. But you can bet the reality of it is going to be that much more greater than the description of it because the description is in baby talk. 
Okay, so, But this is the glory of God. And we hope for it now. We exalt in it. We even brag about it. We have a future. This is not all there is. There's hope for the future. So there's our first rejoicing or exaltation. Secondly, I want to drop down to verse 11. We rejoice or exalt in the now. See, the first one is temporal. We're looking forward. And the second one is temporal also. The third one we're looking at second. And not only this in verse 11, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Paul uses this word now really as a category. Uh, Paul believes in the reality of the presence of the kingdom of God now. Paul believes in the hope for the future, don't get me wrong, but he also believes and presents and teaches that when Jesus came, he's the king. And when the king came, he brought the kingdom. And so when God does a work in someone's life, it says in Colossians 1 that he transfers us from the domain of darkness and into his kingdom or the kingdom of his beloved son. This now is an emphasis on the present realities of the kingdom in our life, and we exalt in those. We actually have in our possession now not just peace with God, not just standing, but fellowship by the Spirit with God himself, fellowship with one another. We experience this this peace we experience some of the privileges of being the sons of God, the access to the throne. Uh, we now can have peace of conscience, not wondering, can I get in the pearly gates someday? But it's actually our actual possession. These are the realities of the kingdom. And Paul is saying that we have and experience this reconciliation with the creator of all things even now in our experience. Not just a religion that's pie in the sky in the great by and by. But the reality of it now, you can know that you know that God loves you and forgives you. You can have a peace of conscience. You can have rest. I didn't look it up, but there's a psalm, I think Psalm 5, where the psalmist says, I will both lay down and sleep, and I will awake again because God watches over me. Just rest. I love that picture of rest and safety. As God watches over me, I'm his. There are realities of the kingdom and privileges of the kingdom that are yours even this day, not just in the future to come. And so we rejoice and we exalt in this because it's all part of the work of God. And then number two, which we will take number three, verses three and four. And not only this, but we also rejoice or exalt in our tribulations. Now again, what kind of crazy people is that? Result in our tribulations. Let's just look at the word tribulation for a moment. Uh, the word literally means to press, to squash. It doesn't sound as present pleasant, right? To press is one thing. To squash is another. To rub, but more like sandpaper, not a massage. Um, the figurative meanings would be things like afflictions, oppressments, harassments, sufferings, tribulations. Uh, beyond that, there's just a wide variety of what that might be. What is that irritant? What is that medical condition? What is that shame somebody has tried to heap upon you? What is it? Tribulations. There's a picture of a, a Latin word called tribulum. A tribulum was a, a, a timber with spikes pounded through it, so they stuck out the other side, like nails through a board. And they would use this to thresh their grain to help separate the kernels. But you see the picture of you know, violence? You know, that's tribulation. This sifting, this discomfort, this, this pressing, squashing. Um, so, 
suffering. And, and you know, I, I'm always hesitant to preach or teach on suffering because I haven't suffered. That doesn't mean I've never been picked on or made fun of. That was, that was my lot in high school. <laughs> but I haven't really suffered, and I certainly haven't suffered for my faith. I've suffered for my nasty attitude. But we're talking about persecution or tribulations for your faith. And God has promised these things. And so first thing, this, this changes how we see them. This changes how we judge them. This changes how we realize, what we realize about them and what God is doing in them. First of all, we see that these things are evidentiary of a new life. Because Jesus said, what? In this world, you will have, same word, tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. But blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Change is how we look. Change is how we see. Whereas before it may have seemed like suffering for suffering's sake or it didn't have a purpose, it wasn't productive, now it is all those things. It is evidence that we are, in fact, in Christ. It is purposeful and productive. If you look at verses 3 and 4, he goes through this, this chain of events. We exalt in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, perseverance could be the word patience. It could be the word endurance. Endurance, perseverance is better because this is not just simply a cowing down and putting up with. This is like in the midst of it, striving forward. You keep on walking. That's perseverance, endurance. So our tribulations bring about perseverance because God has instilled us with a new character that approaches these things differently. We see them as purposeful and productive. Tribulation brings perseverance, and perseverance brings proven character. The idea of proving character is metal that has been refined. You've all heard the illustration before. Metal has to be burned down to melting so things and impurities can be scraped off and burned away so that what comes out is a better product. You know, the same thing with other metals. They sometimes be heat treated and tempered and everything so that when all is said and done, they're harder, they're sharper, they're more useful. This is the productivity of our trials and our sufferings. So tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance brings <laughs> So perseverance brings proven character. And what does proven character produce? More hope. We're already exalting in hope of the glory of God, but all these things, this path that God leads us on through our tribulations, confirms our hope. It shows us the reality. This is God at work. Only God could take this suffering and say, hey, this is a good thing for me. And so it confirms our hope in the work of God. It makes our hope stronger. It just continues in this cycle as God takes us into what seems to be the valley of the shadow. But remember, he says, even there I am with you. And then comes the deliverance through this cycle of life. And so we trust him more. We hope that much more. We believe that much more. So we can exalt and rejoice even in these tribulations, knowing that they are now purposeful and productive, knowing that God is at work. As he takes us through these things, we feel and know his consolation in our trials, and our faith is strengthened. As Paul said, you know, he's hard-pressed but not crushed. He was actually improved. You know, in Hebrews 12, we, we studied the refuge where this is God's training for his people as he is developing in us something better than what we were. He's preparing us for the kingdom of God. And you notice that these things don't happen so much in ease and prosperity. It's just kind of an added here. It's not talked about here, but this happens in our trials. This good thing that God is doing happens in our trials and in our suffering, not so much in our ease and prosperity. That's actually when we're kind of in danger, is it not? 
because our eyes don't turn so quickly to God when we have no needs. And so God, who is our good father, turns our eyes towards him as he is training us in these tribulations. And so we exalt even in our suffering. We exalt in our hope of the glory of God in the future. We exalt of our present participation in the kingdom of God and our present realities and possessions. And we exalt even in our trials and our suffering. How can this be? What kind of people is this who hope in the unseen and rejoice in sufferings? Bunch of crazy people. What kind of people? I'm glad you asked. We are the redeemed. We are former sinners who have simply been loved by God. From before the foundation of the world, him having set his love upon us has done all things necessary to bring us to himself. And it changes everything. This is what we find in the heart of the text. If you go back to verse 5, second half of the verse. We asked start at the very beginning of the verse, and hope does not disappoint. Remember the end result here is hope, the confirmation of our hope. We believe all that much more, and hope does not disappoint. And now in the ESV, this is my preference, hope doesn't put to shame. (laughs) Hope doesn't leave us ashamed. Paul tells us that if we've hoped only in this life, we should be ashamed. We are of all men, most to be pitied. Because if it's not true, (laughs) then we wasted everything, did we not? But we're strange people. We believe in it as a certainty. And we can't help ourselves because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Because God has done something. Because God, before I loved him, loved me. And so we can exalt in all these things. We can be the (laughs) countercultural. We can be the revolutionary. We can be the ones who trust in God. Because of what he said, because he has proven it to us himself by placing his love, by pouring his love into our hearts. Pouring. Not, there's a, there's a movie I like where they talked about, you know, when God poured in your brains, he used a spoon and they juggled his hand. Okay? That's not this. It's not some pitiful, measly amount here. It's the pouring. It's the lavishing upon us of the love of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. He goes on and explains, I won't read the whole thing, but in verses 6 through 10, he goes on and reminds us what love, what love. You know, because that's really sometimes our attitude, is it not? It was in the book of Malachi. God has said, I have loved you. And what do the people say? How have you loved me? You know, and isn't that our attitude like like a teenager sometime when the parents said, after all I've done for you, and they're like, what have you done for me? What have I done for you? You're standing in my house. You know, God says, I have loved you. And we say, how has he loved us? Well, verses 6 through 10 give us the demonstration of God's love. In verse 6, we see that we were helpless. That means we were morally powerless to save ourselves or to somehow cross the threshold into heaven on our own. In verse 6, it also says we were ungodly. This defines us as rejecting the knowledge of God. We wanted nothing to do with it. We rejected. That's an active thing, by the way, not passive. We just didn't know. It's not that we just didn't know. We rejected So we were helpless. We were ungodly. Verse 8 says we were sinners, which means we were guilty and unworthy. In verse 10 it says that we were enemies of God. And this is again is active. It's in opposition to him. We resisted him. We rejected him. But what is God's response to all this? Back up to verse 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were yet sinners... 
God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's the demonstration. What have you done for me? Really? Really? Out of all the things God could give, and who would have faulted him had he given something else and kept the most precious? But that's what he gives. While we were yet sinners, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So God has done this through the death of his son. In verses 9 and 10, you notice the phrase, how much more? Verse 9, much more than having been justified, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's not just that we've been justified. <laughs> There's no fear of the wrath to come. What God has done is already the hard thing, and now just comes all the blessedness. For if while we were enemies, how much more, having now been justified by his blood. Verse 10, for, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 10 now. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. Much more, much more. And this, all of this, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us, back up in verse 5, because of the love of God which has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Romans. comes to the high point in chapter 8, and if I turn just... A page. Let me read just part of the ministry of the Spirit in verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He convinces us. He speaks to us. Jesus said that the presence of the Holy Spirit was better than Jesus' physical presence among his disciples because he would be with you and in you. And it is his job to convince you of the love of God for you. And he does this. So verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also. There's the future again. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified him. See, there's the tribulations. We're going to walk through them, but we will be glorified with him as well by the ministry of the Spirit, which is better than the very presence of Christ among us. He is the presence of Christ with us, in us. This is the love of God for us. What, a bunch of crazy people? I don't think so. God has convinced us. God is convincing us. God has demonstrated his love for us. God has given his spirit to us, placed him in us, with us, to do this task. This has all been the demonstration of God's love. So what is the response from the children of God? Rejoice. Brag about it. When the world sees us and says, what a bunch of crazy people. You know, in atheistic societies, former communism, whatever it is, they actually said that can't be true, so those people must be insane. And so they'd hospitalize them. That's fine. Exalt. Rejoice. Rejoice in your God. Rejoice in his goodness, his glory and love. And in the times that you can't. Because face it, when we go through these sufferings, sometimes we, we just don't have it in us, do we? We don't feel like we can offer up a praise to God. I'm going to give you a little tip. I read a, a book by Packer, J.I. Packer, one time, I think A Quest for Godliness, when he was talking about the devotional practices of Puritan preachers. And I find this useful myself, so I endorse it. Um, he said, the Purit you know, it's not like these days. Every, every pastor has a list of pastors he likes to listen to during the week for his own edification because he's always the one studying and teaching, right? He wants to be preached too. Well, the Puritans, not having access to the Internet, would preach to themselves. 
they would often, as part of their devotional practice, go get somewhere alone where they could out loud preach to themselves. What better could you do than to get yourself alone and read just verses 6 through 10 about the love of God for you and preach to yourself? They said they would preach some of their best sermons. There's something invigorating, something stirring. Um, I have not done exactly this, but I will walk along and maybe quote a psalm. And sometimes when I'm down, oh, (laughs) God lifts you up. The word is effective. He's so good. Not only has he poured out his love, he's given us his word to remind us. And he gives us a spirit to not only plant these things in us, but to grow them up to fruition. Preach to yourself if you're doubting. And for the unbeliever, there's got to be someone here, right? We may appear crazy, but that's because you, you can't see right yet. <laughs> you can't. You can't. My prayer for you this morning is that God's going to open your eyes. Uh, you, are, you are dead in sin. You are separated from God because of sin. Through your fault, yes, because you have sinned, but also because you were born this way, because mankind is full of sin. But that's okay. God saves sinners. We're the evidence. Come join us. Lord, open their eyes. You have heard the word preached. You have heard the glory of God declared. You have heard the mercy of God spoken to you. Don't harden your heart this morning. Don't turn away from him. Don't reject him. Turn to him. God loves sinners. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And my prayer now is that by your spirit, you would just make it effective for your people, Lord, that you would build us up in the faith and you would get us to the point where we would not just walk the life of the martyr saying, oh, woe is me, but that we would rejoice even in our tribulations because you are at work to bring us to maturity, perfection. And ultimately, Lord, though these things are for our good, they are all for your glory. And we pray that you would glorify yourself greatly among us and throughout the world. And draw many to yourself. Many. And may it happen here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.